Well, tomorrow is the 4th of July, of course, a day that we set aside as a nation to, to remember the Declaration of Independence, the, the birth of our, of our nation. And as has already been said, I'm so thankful for the freedom we have in our country to assemble like this, to worship. I'm thankful for those from the beginning of the founding of our nation who have fought to, to give us these freedoms. And I'm often reminded where much is given, much is expected. And, and what a privilege we have to gather week after week after week. Uh, to be able to celebrate the Lord together as a church family. It's an amazing freedom, amazing freedom that many of our brothers and sisters in the world don't have. But if you're, if you're a Bible-believing Christian, what do I mean by that? A Christian who, who spends time in God's word, it doesn't take long to look at God's word and, and realize that our culture is adrift. It's a drift from the, the principles of God's word. It's a drift from the knowledge of the love of God and, and what God has for them. And so this morning, I want to look at a verse that's quite familiar probably to many of you, uh, certainly in, in church realm, if you will, and that's 2 Chronicles 7.14. Um, but as we look at 2 Chronicles 7.14, I, I want to give a little, I don't know if it's a disclaimer, but it's a, a preparatory statement. Uh, we're going to look at it in context, which means that it may ruffle a little feathers when we look at it in context. But if you stick with me, I believe there's some things in this verse some principles, universal principles that apply to us as believers. And so, so don't run out when, when your feathers are ruffled, if they are. Uh, to stick with it, I believe God has something for us as we look at 2 Chronicles 7.14 together. But let's start by just jumping into the verse. 2 Chronicles 7.14. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now, again, I said I want to look at this verse in context, and that's because, well, context is king when we look at Scripture. You've probably heard me say that before. But it's a hermeneutical principle. What's that? It's, it's principles, the way we study and apply Scripture. And so we want to know what's the context of what we're reading so we make sure we're applying it accurately within our life. And so what is the context of the verse we just read, Second Chronicles 7.14? Well, 2 Chronicles 7 is showing us this, this temple dedication. It's written to the nation of Israel. And it's, it's speaking of the fact that God wants to bless them. And if they walk with him, he will. But if they stray away from him, then they'll experience judgment. In fact, if you drop down to 2 Chronicles 7, 19 and 20, we read, But if you turn aside and forsake my statutes and my commandments that I have set before you, and go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will pluck you up from my land, and I will give you in this house that I have consecrated for my name. I will cast, out my, cast you out of my sight, and I will make, it a, make you a proverb and a byword among the nations. And, and so we're, what's being discussed in Second Chronicles 7 to the nation of Israel is, look, I made this covenant relationship with you, and if you walk with me according to that covenant, I want to bless you. In fact, you'll be a blessing to the nations. But if you walk away from it, then there'll be judgment. In fact, we see this sort of portrayed in the nation of Israel from its beginning, even, even as they just become a nation, heading into the promised land. In the book of Judges, we find what's called the cycle of the judges. They come into the promised land, and, and, and what do they do? They, they, they start by worshiping God. But then they stray from him. They begin to worship false gods, do things their own way. And God judges them by sending a nation, 
uh, different nations at different times to, to come and take them over and cause havoc. And, and the people of Israel, what do they do? They cry out to God, save us, save us. And God's faithful. And he sends judges or leaders to come and deliver them from the judgment, if you will, from these other nations. And then they worship God for a while. And then guess what? They fall back into worshiping the false gods and doing things their own way. And another nation comes in and they cry out to God, save us, save us. He's faithful and saves them. And this cycle happens over and over and over again in Israel. So 2 Chronicles 7.14 is found amidst this passage in 2 Chronicles 7, where again, the Lord's talking to King Solomon about his agreement with Israel. Follow after me and be blessed. Do life your own way and receive judgment. Now let me camp here on this word judgment. Because I don't know about you, but when I look at the word judgment, it automatically has negative overtones. Yet when we look in scripture of God's judgment, it's always meant to be done because he loves us. That the purpose of the judgment is to bring them back to him. Remember the, the cycle in the book of Judges? They, they do things their own way. God sends in this judgment and usually a nation and they cry back out to him and he sends a deliverer, then they serve him. Judgment's done out of love by God. And I, I, I often think about this in context of my upbringing and I think of my father when he would judge me, when he would discipline me. The scripture actually says God disciplines those he loves. And I don't know about you, but growing up sometimes, I, I would think to my dad, don't love me so much then. <laughs> but but he, he did discipline me. And as an adult, I'm thankful he did, that the discipline that he, he gave out was loving discipline to teach me how to be the man I am today. And so the things that are good are in part because of my father, the other stuff he wouldn't take any credit for. But God judges his people for the same reason, for our good that we'll be in that right relationship with him. But it's foolish really to think that we can walk outside the parameter of safety as described in God's word and expect to, to live a life that's blessed, to live a life that, that works. That, that when we do life our own way, we're left on our own reconnaissance. And usually that's a judgment in of itself. Have you ever made a situation worse by doing it your way? And so God's judgments to bring us back in alignment with him. So all of this to say this, what is the context of 2 Chronicles 7.14? In context, 2 Chronicles 7.14 is a promise to ancient Israel. A promise to ancient Israel, perhaps modern Israel, but we know ancient Israel. It's a promise to ancient Israel, but if they will repent and return to the Lord, he will rescue them. This is the actual context of 2 Chronicles 7.14. Now you may be sitting there saying, this word may ruffle a little feathers. You may be saying, well, wait a minute, I've heard this verse used for America to claim as, as our verse. And I just have to say, the problem is that this verse is not given in context to the United States. It's given in context to Israel, specifically Israel. In fact, no other nation should co-opt it as their own. Now, now, I know that sort of probably makes some people a little uncomfortable, but it's important to understand that Israel had a covenant, has a covenant relationship with God different than any other nation in the world. Theirs is, is unique. These terms apply to their nation and, and to what God is doing through salvific history through Israel that will go and spread all the way to the returning of Christ. Now, I know the pilgrims made a covenant with God. I know our founders made a covenant with God, and, and that, that's great. And I know we've made a covenant with God. But we're not under the old covenant, the covenant of law, which was the covenant that God made with Israel. And by the way, if you've read the Old Testament, the covenant with Israel is quite different than any other covenant anyone could ever make with God. God was so a part of that covenant. 
It's unique. It's to them. I've had people say to me, why is America not mentioned in the book of Revelation? Well, I don't know. That's above my pay grade. Neither is Iceland. <laughs> Neither is Japan. Neither is Great Britain. Neither is Ireland. Neither. Go down the list. You know, it's as if people think, well, wait a minute, I thought we were the chosen ones. No, no, that's Israel. That's not us. That, that's them. And I don't know why we're not mentioned at the end. And by the way, very few nations are mentioned at the end. Are they the only ones that can exist? I don't think so. I just think when God inspired the word, he said, this is what you need to understand. Israel is significant and will be in the end time when Jesus returns. It's amazing to me. I think Christians have more charts than anyone else. If you've been around church, you know what I'm talking about. The problem is it's speculative theology. Nothing wrong with it. But it's speculation. We don't know. The word doesn't tell us certain things. And, and even the nations that we think are going to be at the end that, that aren't named, we've had to change because some of those nations don't exist anymore or their name has changed. Nothing wrong with looking at it. In fact, the book of Revelation says, blessed are those who read it. But we need to understand why it's there. It's there to let us know confidently as a church that in the end we're part of the winning team. Isn't that good to know? Come on now, is that not good to know? But when everything is said and done, and you look at the world and it's chaotic, you can go, ah, but we win. We get to spend eternity with the Lord. So here's the question then. And I said from the beginning, let me prepare some of you, that in context, this may make it a little uncomfortable when we look at this context. But I believe if we stick with this verse, there's some principles, universal principles found there that apply to every single believer. And so let's look at our verse again. 2 Chronicles 7, 14. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Let me share these universal biblical principles or precepts that we find in 2 Chronicles 7, 14. First of all, although the my people spoken of in this verse is ancient Israel, we the church are God's people. We the church are God's people. First Peter 2.9, Peter writes, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into the marvelous light. We talk about these hermeneutical principles, principles of which we study and apply scripture. And one of them, of course, being context is king. Another one is, what is the best commentary of the Old Testament? It's the New Testament. And so a lot of people ask me, how do we know if something in the Old Testament refers to us? And I said, well, the first place to start is, where, how is it, re, is it referred to in the New Testament? Well, what Peter does here is quite remarkable. He actually takes something that was st stated to the nation of Israel back in the Old Testament and applies it to the church. Now, why is that a big deal? Because it means that that part of that promise that God made, that Israel is my chosen people, that we as God's church are part of the chosen people as well. We've been grafted in, if you will, to God's sacred history, which means that we're his people. That, that God, not only can we call God Father, but he possesses us in the sense that, that he, he has poured his blessings into us through salvation in Christ and fills us with his spirit. And so there's much to celebrate in the fact that we are the church of God. And although maybe our nation isn't listed in the book of Revelation, we are the church and that we have brothers and sisters all over the world who are a part of not the individual nations, but the kingdom of God. 
that we get to be a part of. And so this verse in 2 Chronicles 7, 14 is not written to us. It's written to the nation of Israel. But this idea of my people is a brilliant statement because we are part of God's people. The second principle that I would pull, this universal principle from 2 Chronicles 7, 14 is this. It's always appropriate, always appropriate to humble ourselves and pray and seek God's face in humble repentance. I don't know about you, but early on in my spiritual journey, I can remember sort of making this recommitment to God as a teenager. And, and I thought, Lord, I want to walk with you. I want to live for you. And, and I'm going to do this perfectly. And, and I can remember I was perfect for about three hours, at least except for being boastful enough to say I was going to be perfect. But I mean, I, 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 you know, all of a sudden I was hit with this reality. I don't know if it was a relationship issue. You know, stuff happens. And, and, and all of a sudden I realized I'm not doing this perfectly. And I came across 1 John 1, 9. It's been a cherished verse ever since in my life. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You've heard me say this before, and I can't overstate it because it's so true in my life. I know I'm not what I ought to be, but I thank God I'm not what I used to be. I'm a work in progress. And there's times where 1 John 1, 9, I, I, I have to humble myself and come to the Lord and say, Lord, I, I've dropped the ball again, I've sinned. I, I, I just ask for your forgiveness. And you know what? I don't have to doubt whether he will. Because the verse makes it quite clear. What's he do? He washes over us with his forgiveness. He makes us righteous. He puts us on the right path again. I've heard people really struggle with this in their life and, they, and they've said, look, well, well, I don't want God's anger. And, and I love like Numbers 14, 18. It says, this is about God. So different from what many people see of God. Slow to anger, Numbers 14, 18. This is speaking of God. He's slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. Think about that. I believe a genuine mark of a, Christ, of a Christian is someone who keeps a short account with God. Who when they find themselves in sin, they humble themselves, they pray, they, they seek God's face for forgiveness, who gives it to them. He cleanses us of righteousness and, and puts us on the right path. Second Chronicles 7.14 will hear from heaven, the verse says, and forgive their sins and heal their land. It's been interesting over the years I've had conversations with even believers who say, I love reading the New Testament because God in the New Testament is a God of grace. Well, who's the God in the Old Testament? Oh, he's a God of judgment. Well, that's interesting because it's the same God. Like he's never changed. And so apparently he can be both a God of judgment and grace. He can be a God of love and discipline. He, he, he's God. And although we as believers certainly are not under the old covenant of the law, we're under the new covenant in Christ, we still serve under the same God. But he's been consistently a God of grace from beginning to end and always will be. Amen, church? Amen. That's who God is. And so when we think about that, it's an amazing thing. So what about this healing then? If, if, if we can pull this universal principle, yeah, we are God's people, chosen by him. And, and yes, it's always right to humble ourselves before him and seek his face and, and make sure we have a short account with him. Well, catch this. Here's the third universal precept or principle I pull from 2 Chronicles 7.14 we see throughout scripture. 
and dealing with us in the New Testament as his church. The church is God's plan to reach the peoples of the earth with his love and message, bringing the ultimate healing. That in 2 Chronicles 7, 14, it's talking about healing their land because, I mean, it's, it's, it's the food, right? And they're like, that's how we live. And yet in the New Testament, we realize life is more than food. It's about everything. And, and the real healing that we have in Christ is, is more complete. It's eternal. And so when we look at what God calls us to as a church, it's quite profound. It's, it's to partner with him in bringing healing. What the world needs to see, I, I believe with all my heart, is a church that's genuine. A Christian that's genuine. And again, not perfect, but genuine. There's a difference. Who's pursuing Christ-likeness, but is in journey of becoming like Christ. As a matter of fact, I don't think the world really expects us to be perfect as followers of Christ. They expect us to look like Jesus more and more. Now, I know some people who will give up the journey. They'll say, I'm not going to follow Christ if I can't do this perfectly. And I go, then you can't follow Christ. <laughs> you need to trust in him and let him grow you in the things of God. And the unfortunate thing is, is that many times in our minds as human beings is that we have this romantic vision of perfection. And we're an all-in or not type people. And it robs us of the something God may want to do in your life. Marriages fall apart sometimes because of the romantic perfection of what marriage is supposed to be. And people walk away and God's like, but I want to do something here. <laughs> Let me do something here. People walk away from God because they're like, well, I thought I was going to be perfect. I thought my whole journey was going to be perfect. And I'm like, well, apparently you haven't read this. There's going to be trouble. It's not always going to be easy. But don't walk away from something that you don't perceive as perfect when God wants to do something tremendous in this something that he's given to you. No, no, no. The world doesn't need to see perfection. They just need to see genuineness. People who really love God and are pursuing him and care about the people around them who want to be a part of this healing that God has brought. We understand in scripture that sin separates us from God. It's the great curse, right? Sin entered the world when Adam and Eve fell. And we fell with them. The whole world fell. And sin's what separates us from God. And God loved us so much that he said, what, I'm going to send Jesus, my one and only son, to die on the cross for your sins, right? To be resurrected for your salvation, that we can have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. We couldn't do it on our own. We couldn't be good enough. Jesus didn't owe the debt. We owed it for the wage of sin is death. Jesus died for us so we don't have to. Think about it. And it brought healing. Healing to the most important relationship of all, and that's the relationship between us and God, that through Jesus Christ, we can be right with God, be his people, walk with him. Even approach when we make mistakes and sin and let him forgive us and cleanse us and put us on the right path again. To partner with him in his healing of others. But we often overlook what else sin did. Sin also separated man from himself. Matter of fact, our psychological issues come from that in this fallen world. You say, Craig, are you saying that if I come to Jesus, I won't have to see a counselor? I'm saying, absolutely not. You may need to see a counselor, but if you need to come to Jesus first, that he brings the healing. I'm not saying that if you come to Jesus, you don't have to see a doctor if you're sick. I'm just saying you should come to Jesus first and then go and let people use the gifts that God has given them to do a work in your life in the way that God wants it done. The sociological issues 
that we deal with, not just as a nation, but in the world, comes from the fact of the fallenness of humanity, of sin. The sociological issues, just think about it. It's because of sin that there's racism. It's because of sin that people are looked down on because they don't have this job or that job or they're in this social class. or this. That's sin, it's pride, it's, it's arrogance, it's ridiculous. And what happens when we come to Jesus? We realize there's one, one family under heaven that we're all united in two things. We need Jesus because without him, we're lost. And with Jesus, we're his people. The only division God sees on planet earth are those who are in Adam and those who are in Christ. Those who are walking with him and those that don't. And but those that are walking with them, don't judge the ones who don't. We cry out for God, please use us to bring healing that they will, they'll see you in us and want what we have so they too can be in a right relationship with you. No, no, no. The church is God's plan to reach the peoples of the earth with his love and message, bringing the ultimate healing. We're called to know God and make him known. Jesus says to his disciples and through them to us, his disciples in 2022, he says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, go, make disciples. What's that go mean? It means, it means be a missionary where you live, where you work, where you go to school, where you play. Let God use you to make a difference in the world around you. Be part of the solution. No, 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 we're not anyone's savior. We can't save anyone, but we can point someone to the person who can. Now, we may not be able to have the power to change all the chaos to peace, but we can bring peace into the chaos and, and attract more people to it. That's the part that God's called us to play. So let me share with you real quick three guarantees from God's word, then, then look again at some of these applications from 2 Chronicles 7.14. Three guarantees. We're guaranteed personal salvation when we place our faith in Christ. Romans 10.9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's, it's a guarantee in scripture. If you place your, your life in the hands of Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you will be saved. You'll be in a right relationship with God. Second guarantee. We're guaranteed that God will use his church to accomplish his purposes. Again, I just have to say it. America may not be mentioned in Revelation, but we as his church are. He uses us to be a light to the world around us, to make a difference. And that ties into the third sort of guarantee from Scripture. We're called to be changed by Christ. And when we come to Christ, he changes us. We're called to follow Christ. And as we follow Christ, we partner with him and being part of his mission to reach the world, to bring that ultimate healing. So how do we apply 2 Chronicles 7.14 if it was written in Israel, not us? Well, the universal principles just cry out to us. We're to humble ourselves. Humble ourselves before him. We're to live right with God following his ways, which means we, we have a short account with, with God. And we, the church, we, the church, are the ones that he calls to, to bring healing to a hurt world. There are, give or take a few, 330 million people who live in the United States of America. That's a lot of people. Of those 330 million people, 180 million claim to be Christian. If I have my math right, that's, just, that's over half. 
Now, I don't know about you, but even when I read that statistic, I look at our culture, and I'm not judging in the sense of being judgmental. I just look at God's word and what he calls us and how he calls us to live and how our nation's sort of where we're heading, and I go, that doesn't look like over half the nation are Christian. Like, that's a majority, right? Over half? Am I right? Math wasn't my strongest subject, but I think I'm right. If over half were living for Jesus... I just think things would look different, would feel different. Well, there's another stat that sort of explains it for me. Of that 180 million who claim to be Christian, only 9% of them get their biblical worldview from the Bible. Their worldview from the Bible. So that's roughly 16 and a half million believers. Not 180 believers. So there's 180. I'm not going to do all the math here. Take the 16.5 off the 180. That's the group. The 91% of believers, people who claim to be Christian, they don't get their worldview from Scripture. So how are they choosing how to live? Well, they're getting their worldview from the world. The 9% that are getting their worldview from the Bible are living differently, I would guess, from the 91% that are getting their worldview from the world. Are you following me? And all of a sudden, I started to calculate, and I went, my goodness, 16.5 million. How many churches do we have? That means that I have a ton of counterparts that aren't getting their worldview from the Bible. Then something made sense to me. For years I've had people come into the churches where I've served and say, I'm thankful that this church uses the Bible when they preach. Chris, we preach. I don't know what else we'd use. Like, I don't. Like, what other book are we going to choose? I just don't know. Like, I didn't know it was an option, right? I'm going to preach a message, and today I'm going to go from what book? I'll tell you another thing. I'm really for reading. Not just the Bible, but for reading books. But I think far too many Christians spend time in Christian books instead of the book. I I just really believe, oh man, you guys are looking at me. (laughs) I'm going for it. I just really believe that like, with my relationship with my wife, I'd rather spend time with her than a good friend of hers telling me who she is. So why would we spend a ton of time studying someone else's impression of the Bible when we can go to it ourselves? That's why our small groups spend time with sermon-based because the sermons are based on Scripture and we're in Scripture and you can like discover who God is because you have the Spirit of God. Are you on the same page with me? I say all this to say this. I'm pretty optimistic about what God wants to do in this country. He wants that 9%. And by the way, you say, this is a small percent. No, that's larger than, God has done much more with fewer. For the 9% to be the church. To love him and love others and take his message to the world around us, to be everyday missionaries in places where we live and work and go to school and play. Came across another stat and then I'll wrap up this morning, but... 
I, I came across this study that George Barna did in 2019, his research agency did, and they looked at America, they wanted to know what are the most post-Christian cities in America? Now, what do I mean by post-Christian? Post-Christian means that not only do people in those cities not go to church, but they really have no concept of God or church. Like they may have heard of God, they may know, yeah, there's a church on that corner, but there aren't many people going to church in these cities. And, and the reality of it is not only not going, they don't even know what really happens there. Like they might have gone to a wedding at a church, a funeral at a church, but when everything's said and done, church is a weird, odd, they don't know what happens in that place type of thing for them. That's what post-Christian sort of means. Do you know what the eighth most post-Christian city was according to all that research? Rochester. Only one city was more post-Christian than Rochester, Albany. And that surprises you. But Rochester. And I looked at that and I said, Lord God, thank you for putting me in Canandaigua, New York for such a time as this. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for putting me in a place with such need for you. Thank you for putting me in a, a church family that's part of that 9% that are in your word, that are getting their word, world view from you and not the world, who are striving to live for you and, and being that light into the world around us. That we're your people, we're, we're called by your name. As we humble ourselves before you and pray, not asking why the world is the way it is because we already know the answer to that because they don't know Jesus. But instead of ask, ask the other question, it's even more important to those of us in Jesus. Help us. Lord, why aren't we the church you've called us to be? And, and the reason is because 91% don't even get in his word. But for us 99 percenters, my call is not to change them, it's to be changed myself. But the revival I pray for starts with me. The change that I want starts with me. The healing I want for others starts with me and with you. Lord God, use us, Lord Jesus, to bring healing, to be world changers. After all, we're called by his name. We're given access to him and invited to partner with him to see this healing come. Amen, church. If you've yet to receive Christ as Lord and Savior, that's your first step, whether you're online or here on campus. I just encourage you to, even this morning, reach out to Jesus. Receive him as your Lord and Savior. If you're checking out the things of Christ, then this was sort of an in-house message to say this is what we're called to as believers. This is what we're invited to as believers. And if you're part of the kingdom like I am, then let's encourage each other to live out that 9% life 100% of the time for him. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that grace wasn't an afterthought. That you've always been a God of grace from the beginning and will be through the never-ending future. Thank you, Father, for loving us enough to, to send judgment, conviction, to love us enough, Lord God, to, to know that the sin predicament that we found ourselves in separated us from you and even, Lord God, caused havoc within ourselves, within our society. And 
You didn't leave it to ourselves to sort of bathe in the chaos. You sent your son Jesus Christ to die on the cross for our sins, be resurrected for our salvation, that in him we can have new life. In fact, the scripture says we're new creatures and new creation in Jesus. Lord, I know that we we don't walk perfectly, but may we walk genuinely. Being changed by you, Lord God, help us be a people that that don't get our worldview from anyone but you, from your word. Help us be people of your word. Thank you for, for giving us the blessing of your word. Lord God, I pray for us as a church family that as we're part of the called, we're part of those, Lord God, who are your children, that you've, Lord God, call us your own, that you've filled us with your very spirit and and do this work of making us more and more like Jesus. Help us be an answer, not part of the problem in our culture. Help us share your love and message wherever the opportunity uh, opens and prevails itself. Lord God, do a work in us that others will see and Lord, I was told by a friend recently that it's uh, that attraction's always better than promotion. So Lord God, would you do something in each of us that would attract people to you? Father God, would you do something that would allow us to do, do that work, and not just in us, but through us. Lord God, may it start in our homes, places where we live. May it spread to where we work, to where we go to school. Father God, may it it spread to the places where we play. That Lord, that 9% would become 20%, 30, 40, 50. Lord God, that you would do a work in our region, a revival in our region that only you could be given glory for. And we thank you and we praise you for such a time as this you've placed us here loving us, for filling us, for using us. In Jesus' name, amen.